I'm Lisa Dale Miller, clinician and author of Effortless Mindfulness, Genuine Mental Health Through Awakened Presence, a new textbook on Buddhist psychology for mental health clinicians. This is the second part of my stimulating and informative conversation with David Vago, PhD, one of the most prominent neuroscientific researchers on meditation. We begin the second part with David's description of SART, his wonderful framework for describing the positive effects of meditation practices. The rest of our discussion moves through topics we both felt we needed to unpack a bit more that were touched on in part one. These include decentering, embodied cognition, compassion practices, the neural correlates of not-self. We do this using neurobiological, psychological, and dharmic perspectives. So I hope you enjoy this second half of my dialogue with David Vago. I'm Lisa Dale Miller. Welcome to part two of my dialogue with David Vago on the neurobiology and psychology of enlightenment. David is associate psychologist in the Functional Neuroimaging Laboratory at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and he's also an instructor at Harvard Medical School. Good to see you again, David. It's wonderful to be with you again, Lisa. In the first part of our discussion, we focused primarily on defining terms, and we agreed that awakening was our preferred term because it suggests both a process and an end goal. Today, we will focus primarily on the self-transcendence aspect of awakening, or what is traditionally known as not-self. David, you formulated a beautiful framework called SART for describing the positive effects of Buddhist-derived meditation practices. SART delineates four primary areas in which these effects are realized. Increased meta-awareness, greater response regulation, a sense of self-transcendence, and improved pro-social skills. So before we dive more deeply into not-self, would you start us off with a quick overview of SART's relevance as a model for neurobiologically and psychologically describing the states and traits we might associate with awakening. If we just refer to mindfulness really as the entire dharma, really, or the Buddhist meditation practices that, that are used for systematic mental training, um, for reducing suffering and, and sustaining a healthy mind, then you know we have to think about um, operationalizing some of the uh, factors that um, produce change. You know, what is it that's this, what's transforming in mind, brain, body, yeah. in the practitioner? And so we focus on identifying, uh, using the self and identifying neural networks in, uh, in the brain related to self-processing um, to pr 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 uh, create a framework for how uh, these meditation practices are self are transformative, and we think they're transformative in ways that can be measured in the networks uh, that represent self-processing. Mm -hmm. So um, that's where we started um, this whole process of SART. And so SART really is a way to describe sort of the general framework for self-awareness, self-regulation, and self-transcendence, and we operationalize those 
terms in, in, in a particular framework, I refer to a number of factors that you see in the Buddhist text. So just as a summary, um, you know, self-awareness really refers to uh, an unbiased form of awareness of yeah. self, others, and one's relation to the world. And I always show this picture of a cat, you know, looking in the mirror and seeing a lion. And, uh, you know, in, 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 in this regard, it really refers to, you know, your version of reality and how your entire worldview can be distorted without you even having any knowledge that, it, that it's distorted in some way. And um, that distortion of your own perception and evaluation of the world, and I break it down into a time frame. Uh, you know, if you think of every moment of existence, of your existence, uh, as around 500 milliseconds in time, and you have sort of these sort of string, a string of me, a string of me and my and mine um, types of rep, uh, uh, relationships over and over again, then you can break that down, that 500 milliseconds down into the first half, which is based in sensory and perceptual processing. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, zero to about 250 milliseconds long. And that happens all underneath awareness. And then 250 to 500 milliseconds, their cognition begins. Mm -hmm. And you start to evaluate the world. And so the distortions that we see and the biases that we see, the maladaptive habits that we have in terms of our worldview, you know, whether it's, you know, our, our fears, our um, expectations, our wants, our attitudes, our values, our self-image, all of these things create a worldview. And all of that is distorted by uh, what happens um, from time now to uh, time pl now plus X mm -hmm. or time now minus X. <laughs> Everything that's happened up to this point in time is a string of perceptions and evaluations. And the more times that you have a particular distortion, uh, that's going to become more and more heavily conditioned uh, into a more um, uh, enduring trait or habit of mind. You can have a totally different perception and evaluation of an experience um, than somebody who's in the same exact room as you having the same uh, experience happen around them. So you put two people in a room and then you ask them what happened and there's going to be different stories. Um, so aside from our fallibility of just uh, recounting or retrieving a, a, a previous memory, um, there is just a distortion in how we perceive the world. And it can be negatively skewed if everything's negative and it's constantly uh, associated with anger, frustration, sadness, um, that's conditioning itself. So everything that's contextually relevant to every moment that happens is going to be then associated with those negative interpretations and, and perceptions. In terms of self-awareness, the idea of these practices is to, well, first settle the mind. Mm -hmm. The idea is let's calm it down first. Let's make sure that you can have the focus necessary to gain insight into what those habits are. Mm -hmm. And once it's settled, then we can gain insight and look in and see self-reflection. So bhavana, right? The bhavana is the, mm -hmm. it's the form of 
develop cultivating familiarity yes. uh, with one's mind. That's the essence of the meditation practice, to settle it down and gain insight. So once we have that insight, we can see things more clearly. I mean, that's the way it's described in the Buddhist text, correct? Mm -hmm. Right, so it makes sense intuitively as, uh, as a form of introspection to just look within and get a better, more accurate sense of what your mental habits are. Now, you may not have direct insight into what's happening beneath awareness at the perceptual level, right. but certainly you could influence what happens at that level by modifying how you react to thoughts and emotions that arise, how you can examine them a little bit more without the reactivity, without the immediate reaction, um, and with more just curiosity. And just through awareness, uh, the idea at least is that you can change those, those habits into more adaptive ones, ones that are going to be better for you. We're not very good at, at, uh, at knowing ourselves, as, as you may think you are. You may think you have good insight into who you are and how you behave, but actually it's, uh, uh, we're quite uh, biased and, and we're, um, our perception of ourselves is a little bit distorted. So the practice is supposed to help us gain insight. Number one, self-regulation refers mostly to what we're used to hearing. It's the clarity that develops yes. in one's insight and towards one's mind. And that comes from training the mind in a systematic way to, uh, to stop it from being quite impulsive uh, and from uh, being distracted. Okay, so having the monkey mind, keeping it clear and calm and concentrated. So there's the regulation piece. Uh, what do we mean by transcendence? At least in this context, in the SART model, uh, we're talking specifically about um, self-processing and transcending self-focused needs and wants and desires. Mm -hmm. It's about developing a relationship between self and other and, uh, and the rest of the world, and how you relate to others. It's things like improving empathy, improving theory of mind. So really just ability to put yourself in the shoes of others yes. and then connecting in a heartfelt way with other people. Mm -hmm. So altogether, self-awareness, self-regulation, and self-transcendence create this framework by which these meditation practices are working to reduce suffering mm -hmm. and create a healthy mind. And, I, and, and I'm not ambiguous about what suffering is. I try to be very explicit mm -hmm. from the Buddhist point of view and from the Western uh, psychological models of what we can think of as suffering. Why does psychopathology originate? Any of the changes that are described by any of the suttas in any of the three vehicles always has other-centeredness at its core because right. one has to um, alleviate the idea of subject-object dualism in order to know the nature of how things actually are. I'm hopeful, I guess, that neurobiology will be able to start delineating the existence of what we call pure awareness so that it'll begin to move more in the direction of including a, a expanded definition of what self-transcendence is. I, I, I think this is, this is wonderful. Um, I, I, and again, I think we can go back and forth between the Buddhist models of mind Mm -hmm. and 
the sort of more Western analogs to come up with a integrated way of understanding the self transformation that's happening yes. through these practices and and you know those who do these practices in a serious way beyond just eight weeks you start to have these sort of mini awakenings right and if we can capture those from a neurobiological perspective uh, we can see those as sort of a biomarker for progress along the path um, I see no conflict in doing that, and I don't think it's overly reductionistic. I just think it's it's another tool in our um, scientific um, tool toolbox to help us uh, improve our lives in some way. So, uh, you know, when I think about neuroscience and how it interfaces with Buddhism or clinical applications, I see it as just uh, a tool for neurotherapeutics. It's just a, it's a way that we are figuring out um, uh, another lens that can look within and determine more objectively um, where we are and see what's happening. From the Buddhist point of view, habits sort of refer to this fourth aggregate, right, out of the five aggregates, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the samkara, yeah, and in that that's in that in the Buddhist model of mind, um, this is sort of a defining feature for um, dispositional mental formations or volitions that make up oneself and the contents of mind. Yep. So, in and and from the Buddhist point of view, it's it's getting the insight into how those samkaras exist or how they work and where they originated from. And then also looking at, you know, the triggers, which objects um, trigger those habits. So I think there's a sort of a, an ethical framework hidden deep within there. Oh, yeah. Because clearly there are, you know, um, sort of moral um, uh, uh, underpinnings that are driving some of these mental habits. And so the idea there is to disentangle the what's going on in the mind from the actual ethical uh, side of things, why they may be wholesome or unwholesome, why they may be negative, and what, what is the craving or clinging that we are, that, that's uh, originating uh, or that's leading to many of these um, negative types of uh, thought processes. Yeah, I think evolutionary psychology has some part to play here in that investigation because the Buddhist texts are very interesting when it comes to the sankaras or volitional formation. And I know I spent a lot of time in my book on this, but they're a mix of what modern terms we might describe DNA type traits that we inherit. The, the texts are very clear about the sankaras being these habits that are held as seeds in part of the psyche as they would describe it and when certain triggers show up those seeds get expressed and we have these habitual ways of perceiving and behaving and feeling and thinking that are rooted so deeply in the makeup of the human being and though Buddhism didn't have the genetics, and they didn't have neurobiology. They describe all of this very beautifully. I mean, there's a lot of interest now 
from the positive psychology movement is resurfacing mm -hmm. uh, to look at people who claim to have these non-dual experiences from multiple traditions, from uh, you know Judeo-Christian, Muslim, other types of spiritual practices. Mm -hmm. um, are they going to look similar to a Buddhist experience of non-duality? I, as a, you know, as a positivistic, reductionistic scientist, I would say yes, they should look exactly the same. Uh, I, I think a Buddhist would agree with you, actually, because awakening is just a human trait. Yeah, it's just a human trait, and it has something to do with, you know, existing in this reality that we all share. Yeah. Um, so, I think that's another sort of level here that we're, we're, we're starting to explore. People are very interested in it. I, I'm involved, you know, in, in, in studies that are looking beyond Buddhism. So I, I think um, that'll be interesting to see if those, those, uh, uh, those studies map onto uh, the, the grand scheme of things in a very similar way. People who are willing to, to have some kind of regular meditation practice, they move faster along their path to liberating themselves from whatever they came in to work with that was challenging them in their lives. I've seen that over and over again. I don't force my patients to meditate because I give a lot of in-the-moment, informal mindfulness practices in which they can recognize awareness and have the insight they need to in the moment. But right. I do let them know that in terms of really changing their neural framework, <laughs> that some kind of practice, whatever that's going to look like, is appropriate and necessary. Yeah, no, you know, and you made a few good points that I wanted to emphasize. There's uh, an interest in looking at it from not only the neurobiological, but a new sort of form of cognition, like embodied cognition. Mm -hmm. And... If we take the more cultural, contextual sort of framework of understanding mind and what wisdom is yeah. and what that insight is that helps people move and change their trajectory to more adaptive uh, ways of thinking, what, what is that mental substrate that is uh, arising for them as wisdom or maybe Sampajanya? Mm -hmm. as that, that clear comprehension. Mm -hmm. What is it that, so for example, there's one psychological process that happens for people that I think is one of the critical shifts uh, that we don't have a good understanding yet neurobiologically. Uh, you may see this as a clinician, but this idea of decentering. Yeah. So when somebody can actually shift from identifying personally with thoughts and feelings uh, to relating um, uh, to one's experience in a wider field of awareness um, mm -hmm. where you can engage with an object of attention without avoiding it uh, or becoming entangled with one your own awareness. Um, so you're no longer someone who is angry or is depressed, but you're ha you are someone who's having a thought that is angry uh, or that is depress depressing types of thinking. Mm -hmm. that, that just de-identification... Mm -hmm. uh, is probably one of the biggest shifts for uh, people who are um, ha who have psychopathology. Mm -hmm. Am I right as a clinician? Would you say that? 
Yes, that, that when I talk about this with my patients, I'm introducing them to a phenomenological model of experience rather than a internal, internally obsessed narrative experience. And embodied cognition, to me, is the fulcrum of awakening. It's the fulcrum of liberation for people. And the phenomenality, whether it's internal phenomena or external phenomena, experiencing phenomena as phenomena is the core of what I would say is not self. How are we going to identify these people and, and how do we identify where people are at? I would say that the neurobiology offers some level of analysis where we can say, I mean, I can say right now, I think I have a pretty good idea of what the executive monitor substrate is. Mm-hmm. Um, not definitively, but certainly there's good evidence to suggest that, you know, say the dorsal ace or anterior cingulate cortex and the frontal polar cortex work together to maintain a form of awareness uh, on oneself, what's happening internally, and at the same time, what's happening externally, and integrating that information to maintain some sort of goal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, to me, that seems like a pretty powerful neural substrate for this idea of decentering or meta awareness. Um, now, if you add that substrate to, um, or that sort of neurobiological characterization to a more situated, uh, embodied cognitive perspective, where which you can get at through some sort of interrogate. In, um, uh, interrogating um, or interview process mm-hmm. uh, along with sort of a clinical uh, perspective um, and maybe even through um, you know having the expertise of a, of a teacher um, uh, a Dharma teacher mm-hmm. to have, this, have an interview um, process as well that collectively gives you a global picture of that uh, that self of where it is mm-hmm. in the trajectory of development. Um, just like, you know, Erickson, for example, have these really beautifully articulated stages of development as we go through life um, that map very well onto the, the typical conflicts that we experience. It's the transcendent part that is something... I think the it's a pinnacle of human evolution that we're just tapping into now where we have much more insight into our own process rather than just looking at it from the third person. Yes. So um, this is just our... The Buddhist meditation practice become a great model for um, disentangling uh, the traditional framework of human development from sort of an enlightened perspective, which it goes beyond just the normal form of development, but, but, uh, but is supposed to connect us back with the source of, of our own humanity and um, uh, make us all one. The difference somewhat between the Buddhist teachings and some of these other methodologies is that the, the Buddha himself was so interested in the functioning of mind. This is a tradition in which the the First-person research into how mind functions doesn't really exist in any of these other traditions. There's some of it in the Upanishadic tradition, and I think that the Buddha was following up on the Upanishadic 
aspects of that tradition yeah. when he went and, and really delineated this functioning of mind. In the Samyutta Nikaya, the Bara Sutta is really a great example. This is the Sutta on the burden, where the, the Buddha basically describes what is the burden that every one of us is suffering under and is keeping us from experiencing full awakening. And he described that burden as the five aggregates which are subject to clinging. That sense of the form I'm in is solid and permanent and real. And I actually believe fully that this is a separate form from everything else. That's one. The, the feeling tone of any percept that happens to come in to any one of my five senses or into the sense base of mind, that Vedana, the feeling tone that you described before, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and what that does at the level of the body, because frankly, emotions live at the level of the body. And that information is perceived at the body first. And we have our quick nervous system responses to um, the feeling tone of experience that happens long before we are conceptually having any kind of thought about it. We're already responding to it. So the Buddhists knew this. They knew that they have these kinds of um, basic aversion or attraction to experience. And then, of course, after that, it is then conceptualizing and categorizing whatever it's perceiving, which the Buddhists called perceptions, which is the third of the aggregates. And then, of course, the formations, which we discussed earlier, which leads to whether or not we cling to it or we become it <laughs> and we act on it. And so this, this is the burden. And the Buddha says that's the basic burden, and that burden then leads to our identity. Our identity is what forms what we habitually want and what we habitually don't want. And our slavery to our habitual wants and not wants, based on lots of things, including what our culture tells us we should want, he, he pointed to that. And then he basically said, there is a way to lay down the burden, which is the path of not-self. That's the only way to lay down the burden, which is to clearly see these five aggregates as they are, which is just constructions that they are not some truth about the nature of our person. They are a collection of beliefs and perceptions that we act on believing very firmly that these are true and these are who we are. I would try to revisit what we mean by non, no self because yep. that seems to be the, the most difficult concept for people. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, when, when a lot of people start practice, um, they, you know, everyone knows that there's supposed to be some dissolution, dis, oh, dissolution of self, like it's dissolving, right? <laughs> well, uh, no, not really. Well, in some sense, it is, right? It's you're dissolving. Uh, you're you you have to first dissociate. I mean, you're actually encouraging people to dissociate in a way. You're asking them to take a third-person perspective on one's own existence and look down and see who you are. Give yourself the, the, the inner reflection without being within oneself allows you to have that dissociative experience 
to get a better perspective on who you are and what your patterns of mind are, are like and behavior. That dissociation that's happening is, um, is just a natural part of this meta-awareness skill that's, that's developing. But that's freaky to a lot of people. Say as a clinician, knowing yeah. what dissociation actually looks like in yeah. the room, there isn't anything about not-self to me that's dissociative. And the reason I say this is because unlike many people who think it's a dissociative process, I actually think it's a full stepping in process. That what people are associated with is the story about the way things are, not the actuality of the way things are. And I think Evan and I, Evan Thompson that is, he and I are on the same page with the idea that when you fully step in to the totality of what experience is, this is a fully associative process, but you're not associating with a false narrative of the way things are. You're now fully associated with the full-on, full embodied experience of the way things are, and that is what disentangles one from the suffering of the false narrative of a self. I, I would agree with that, but through the process, we have to at least um, throw it on the table here that there is a dissociative component that occurs um, even through the process of noting and labeling. Um, I, I strongly believe that there is um, a level of dissociation that happens, and you know. It can be a healthy form of dissociation. I don't see that as as necessarily one that has a form of pathology attached to it. I see it as a way of reflection during that time of moving from you know self to no self. Uh, I think we have to at least uh, you know it's almost like a black box warning. There will be some level of dissociation happening. <laughs> And if you're not prepared, it could be it could be difficult. It's a bumpy path. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to at least you know say that because people you know go through these practices and they have very deep experiences that could be uh, scary. Um, some people who experience being you know feeling like their self is nothing um, or that they no longer have a sense of self. Mm-hmm. Um, have difficulties with that experience. So, uh, I mean, my, my response to that is really it's just part of the process of gaining uh, meta-awareness. It's, it's the ability to have an out-of-body experience with equanimity and clarity, um, to not freak out and mm-hmm. to see it like, ah, what a fresh perspective. <laughs> I see my mind as it truly is. If people have a hard time understanding what no self is without a direct experience. Um, I agree, absolutely. Many of these practices are very different from each other. So the practice of noting and labeling, I would say, is a separative practice. It's still a sub, that's a, still a dualistic practice. It's important for people to be able to do the practice in order to know that what's arising is not this absolutely true awful thing it's actually a thought that feels bad that's an important thing for people to be able to experience right. and to me that's wisdom 
That's yeah. that's knowing things as they are. And if it's a dissociation from the egoic um, obsession with the identity of the one who's in pain. I mean, a lot of this for clinicians is a, is the idea of you're attached to an identity, the one who suffers. And looking at that identity as this is, in the way the Buddhist says, it's a collection of thoughts and experiences and feelings you've had that have all equaled up to this is who I am, this is who I'll always be, and I'll never be anything else. And in that way, the... The meditation practices, for me, they allow people to liberate themselves from the delusion, and I do call it a delusion, that the suffering self is all they are, or even what they are. Right, and from the, I would say from the neurobiological perspective, we try to figure out correlates or substrates that can help identify your sort of attachment to self Yes. and the liberation of that attachment. And I think probably the best examples today, um, you brought up pain, I think that's where some of the best evidence is to yep. suggest uh, a distinction between self and other is very clear, where you see someone else experiencing pain and particular neural substrates are, are, are active during the time of observing somebody, mm -hmm. right? But... Uh, if you were to experience the pain yourself, you know, how similar would those neural substrates be? Right. Uh, it turns out the, the level of similarity of activation um, between experiencing pain yourself and watching others experience pain mm -hmm. depends on how close you are, how, you, how close you feel that you are related to that other person. Yes. So if you are, if it's the if, you know, the Queen of England. <laughs> Those neural networks look very different. Yeah. If it's your significant other in, in your life, or mother, if you have a good relationship with your mother, um, then those, diff those differences are less, right? Yes. And this is one of the best examples, I think, that could even be a metric for, you know, your progress as a practitioner. Mm -hmm. uh, because no matter whether it's the Queen of England or your significant other, yes. there should be less and less of a difference if you are significantly progressing along the path. Yes, of course. And then that's that other-centeredness we talked about as the, the um, guidepost for not-self. Right. So your brain would make no distinction there. Exactly. Right? exactly. And that's, that's critical because you, you make a distinction. Uh, that's not me. That's <laughs> someone else. Someone else is getting hurt in Syria, not me. Yes. Well, why is it when advanced practitioners practice compassion, why, why is their amygdala so highly active? Yeah. That doesn't make sense. You know, their amygdala should be down, suppressing that emotional response. But it turns out that their, uh, their, their physiology mm -hmm. may be looking like somebody who's actually experiencing the suffering themselves. Yes. But with the equanimity that they have internally, mm -hmm. they're, they're not uh, experiencing the maladaptive effects of that suffering. Yes. Now, that is still something I think we're, we're all grappling with and trying to understand. What is it like to be an advanced practitioner to experience someone else's suffering? Mm 
Mm-hmm. And is it harming us in some way? And some people talk about compassion fatigue, for example. Mm-hmm. And if someone is a very compassionate human being and they're dealing with suffering all the time, where does that energy go? How do you dissolve that energy if you are experiencing it like it is your own? If there is that non-duality present mm-hmm. and you are really present with everyone else's suffering, um, are you able to through equanimity, uh, dissolve that energy yes. and, and uh, ground it in a way that, that rids it and, and transforms it into something more positive. Yes. Now that, that's, that's a very tall order. And I think, yes, it is. And, and to be honest, my, my own opinion, and I've always felt this, is that it's kind of dangerous to, to, to assume that, that anybody can do some of these advanced um, compassion-based practices because mm-hmm. if you're taking on someone else's suffering, how do you transform that? It's not an easy thing to do. You know, the, I, I'm, I may have mentioned this before, but the, the Ketero in, in the, uh, the native Andean uh, mountains, the natives of the Andes, they, um, they, you know, they're, they're, um, they have their own very well-articulated practice of transforming negative energy. They call it heavy energy, hucha. Mm-hmm. It's heavy energy. It's just negative energy. You know, if someone yeah. is negative, you feel it, right? And so they have a way of grounding it through their navel to the earth. They put it through the yeah. Pachamama. Pachamama takes out that energy and takes it away. Uh-huh. But there's not a lot of those techniques um, that I'm aware of um, uh, in, for, for Buddhism uh, and it's only assumed that as you advance in your practice, you will be better at doing that. Some of the six yogas of Naropa, some of the tantric yogic practices are geared more for that. Actually, in my book, I taught a clinical version of Tonglen, this giving and sending, which I think is a way of working it with patients so that they don't, they're not under the delusion that they're actually taking on suffering. See, this is the thing. You're always combating the mind creating delusion around anything, including the practices. (laughs) Because the ego is very um, good at coming in and owning it. (laughs) I am the one who takes on suffering. And I would also just say that um, Ogle Klemecki has done some beautiful work on that difference between the compassion network in the brain and the empathy network. She and... uh, Tanya Singer are pretty well convinced that it's empathy fatigue and not compassion fatigue. <laughs> um, that compassion yeah. is a different neural whole other neural network that's less right. egoically associated with taking on suffering. So. Right. Well, this is this is another problem in the field of how we interpret a concept like I, compassion because it's always confused with things like sympathy, emotional contagion, and empathy, for example. Always confused. And I would just encourage people to look at Tanya Singer's work, and and there's an e-book actually out that distinguishes very nicely about compassion, empathy, emotional contagion, sympathy, and and concepts uh, similar to that. That's one of the reasons I spend so much time on this in my book. Yeah, trying yeah. to tease this out so that the confusion would somehow not continue to be spread contagiously among psychotherapists. But this is this is great that it's that we're talking about it because it's it's what's considered the glue. 
behind um, this non-dual state, this enlightened state, this awakened state. Yes. You you can't experience the awakened state without that that not that compassionate, that true compassionate orientation. And this also speaks to the idea. Um, I think that's a little bit misconstrued in the literature about self-compassion oh, yeah. versus just compassion. And we, you know, we're always talking about, oh, be more compassionate towards yourself. It, and it sort of assumes that there's a distinction between compassion towards self and compassion towards others. Um, there's actually a scale. You know, Chris and Neff has a scale that looks at self-compassion and other compassion. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, as much as I... I I think this, this is a great beginning to uh, trying to understand compassion. It, it's a little bit misleading because, um, at least from the Buddhist perspective, there is no distinction between self-compassion and other compassion. Right. Compassion is compassion. It's non-dual. It's non-referential. It's yes. the awakened state. Um, and you can't have that for yourself versus other. It's just um, it's universal. I think this is actually a good time for me to read this paragraph from Anam Tupton because he actually describes all of the different um, levels of not-self that you and I just went through in the clinical discussion okay. from the Buddhist perspective. And Wonderful. of course, it ends up with non-referential compassion, believe it or oh, not. Oh, perfect. Okay, okay. So, so he says, When we pay attention to our breath, body sensations, and to the awareness that arises, then all the illusions, suffering, confusion, sorrow, and personal issues, all of this begins to dissipate. We see that all of these experiences are born of delusion. This is the sense of I. I am real. I am truly existent. Everything is gone except this I, this sense of self. Then, when we continue meditating, the sense of self also goes away. When we just keep meditating, we just remain in that awareness and observe, then the self dissolves too. When the self dissolves, there is just pure awareness. When the self completely collapses, there is this inexpressible, simple yet profound and ecstatic, compassionate awareness. Nobody is there. I is completely non-existent in that place. There is no separation between samsara and nirvana, and there is nobody pursuing the path or chasing after enlightenment. This is exactly what you said, that the awareness itself, as its manifesting quality, is this non-referential compassionate impulse. That it's inherent in the awareness itself, and that is something that is other than this egoic sense of a solid, separate self. And so when we say not self, we are not saying you're not going to be you anymore. Hmm. (laughs) You're going to be more of you. Yeah. (laughs) Actually. Yeah. Yeah, you do. You take on, you take the world joins with you. Um, You get more, you're connected. You're much more connected to all beings. Um, I, you know, there's certainly there's no way we can really describe this in in an accurate way yet with the limited technology we have in neuroscience. But um, these are constructs that fit onto our map, um, and as we continue to draw up the blueprints uh, of this map, we can reveal 
some of the layers underneath, which are the neurobiology. So what are the you know what are these biological markers? This is just a a, a beautiful way of of clarifying um, what we mean, what what the Buddhists mean within this wonderful, wonderfully art, articulated uh, and rigorously systematic way of describing mind. Yeah. Um, the Western model of mind is pathetic compared <laughs> to that. Um, you know, we don't. We have no. We have no clue what the hell the mind is. Um, I mean, we point our finger a bunch of times, but uh, we know the saying about pointing fingers at things um, doesn't really tell us much. So, I think what we're, we're what we're learning is that that the neurobiology, along with contextual contextualization through situated embodied perspectives. Um, you know that that where the philosophical point of view enters in, and and a purely cognitive point of view enters in, and the clinical yes. uh, perspective adds to this this rich description. When people are experiencing these no self uh, states, mm-hmm. these temporary non dual experiences, you know, and you can do this just by you know, resting in awareness uh, for a moment. Mm-hmm. You can just drop right in. Yep. Um, I mean, through training, eventually that's what happens. And it's this expansiveness that happens, uh, the way it's described, um, and, um, you know, the, the way that many practitioners experience it. So what's happening at that point in the brain? Well, we can certainly say something's uh, happening, and most people... Uh, We'll be like, wow, that's really cool. <laughs> a lot of people would also say, um, well, what does that really tell us? And how is that going to be helpful? So uh, just to appease everybody, I will say that um, you know, what we think is happening uh, is very similar to what's happening when someone's practicing, say, compassion practice. Mm-hmm. Um, it's some. It's a state of, of of higher cognition. It's not suddenly your brain disappears, but there is brain activity. I think that is related very strongly to higher order cognitions of particular substrates in the brain that are responsible for making us human. Yes, um, are actually the most active um, and more active than any other time. It's the rest of the. The, the systems that, um, that uh, keep us perceiving uh, and evaluating um, that sort of drop, drop off. Um, but it's a very stable form of, of concentration, um, at least the, the networks um, that seem to be responsible or now sort of theorized to be responsible um, involve just a higher order form of cognition. And it's just a stable attention, uh, just as you would describe it in um, in the Buddhist text. You would describe it from the the neurobiological point of view to to sort of map on very clearly as just a state of awareness, mm-hmm. um, and where you see many of the other um, substrates of processing information drop off, um, but with but without the um, zoning out type of experience. Exactly. So what you've just described is embodied cognition. And it's very, as you said, it is very easy. Everybody can do it right now. Yeah. Okay, all you have to do 
is just allow yourself to be aware of mm -hmm. the surroundings that are around you. Literally, mm -hmm. let your ears open, let your eyes open and see, hear everything around you. Feel, and when I say feel, that means feel the feeling of your body Wherever it is, if it's in the chair, if it's on your bed, wherever you are, feel the actual feeling of your body, feel the weight of it, and allow your senses to tell you the nature of the way things are. Yeah. This is embodied cognition. This is open awareness. This, this is essentially mm -hmm. what we're describing as being more of who you are because you're no longer fixated on some internal story that is what people mostly pay attention to in their, as you beautifully described it, their 500 millisecond <laughs> increments of experience. <laughs> yeah. I will say that through some, some empirical support for this, um, you know, we have some data. We, we haven't published it yet. Um, we're waiting to look at how it compares to novices. But um, our expert meditators were found to... Um, be more aware of the periphery. Yes. Without even knowing that they're aware. Of course. So that's another point that a lot of people think, well, as as you become more experienced practitioner, you should be aware of everything that's happening underneath awareness. The stuff in the first 250 milliseconds, you should be more aware of it. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe not. That's, I think that's still an open question. But the fact is that you're able to report things from your periphery without even knowing that you're aware of it. Like yeah. you can, you have some insight as to what's happening out here yes. without even knowing that you have perception into it. And just by being mm -hmm. aware in that non-dual state, you're also freeing up cognitive resources. Yes. And that means that you're allowing your attentional uh, um, you know, substrates to to then latch on to the things that are around you rather than focusing on what's going on inside. It's not processing information. It's open to what's outside or inside. It's just it's taking in what's ever happening now. Right. Now. Now. It's just more ex expanded because you're freed up. You've freed up all the resources necessary yes. to be more aware. If you, Every 500 milliseconds I was saying is like a moment, right? So if I showed you two objects within 300 milliseconds of each other, it's unlikely that you will even see the second object because the first object is being processed so much so that you don't have any cognitive resources available to see the second one. Mm -hmm. Now, if you are limiting how many attentional resources you have to this particular first object, mm -hmm. then you will have enough resources to see the second one in a shorter amount of time. S similarly, many of us go around our world like this. <laughs> I see everything and are hyper vigilant to what's directly in front of us. But it's a tunnel. Okay? Right. And if you aren't so hyper vigilant to what's around you, you can then be vigilant without the hyper part to everything around you. Um, and I think there's a balance there. It's a being able to shift to extreme concentration and focus um, when necessary and using that skill when, when necessary but not doing it all the time. That's where an anxiety comes in. 
And if you're able to just let go of that sort of tunnel vision when necessary, you, you keep it out and you're more, you have this sort of a more aware or expansive form of awareness. Yes. And then when necessary, hone in, but not all the time. Because if you're honed in all the time, you're going to be just anxious. My way of saying that, there is full presence in the arising and passing of phenomena as they are occurring in the stream of experience. And so there's a sense of presence of being in the experience without fixation. Patients come in and tell me how joyful it is for them to be in their lives without the fixation on everything that they're normally thinking and feeling with regard to what's occurring. Rather just having the experience and being able to act what I call dynamic responsiveness, which is a term from the Tibetan text, that instead of having to continually think about what you're going to say and do, there's presence. So there's this dynamic responsiveness that's spontaneous and occurs along with the flow of experience. You are just another aspect of what's occurring. And because you're there, it's easy to spontaneously respond. I think that's part of, that's the R in SART. <laughs> Yes, the regulating, exactly, the impulsive nature of our, our, our tendencies to want to just speak over somebody. And good listening is like a you know, critical sort of skill, probably another way to identify what, how advanced somebody is. Well, it's yeah. hard to do if the nervous system is activated. Right, right. If, so. you're, if you're activated in an experience, it's very difficult to just hang back and listen. So... We, we need to be really clear that all of the mind states we're talking about have corresponding body states. You need to have the awareness of yourself and your relation to others to be able to regulate so you can listen and be heard and then transcend to realize there is a relationship that you have with others that's uh, important that to realize that the distinction is little. And that, again, we're at the level of trying to clarify constructs because whether it's mindfulness, compassion, or enlightenment, all three are, are always um, conflated with many common interpretations. And, you know, whether it's empathy, theory of mind, sympathy, or whether it's, um, you know, acceptance, awareness, attention, non-judgment, um, you know, or awakening. Mm -hmm. What is? What are these constructs? I think we're slowly developing this science, and we're going to be we're going to be better at clarifying and translating the concepts into more um, common everyday psychological terms and concepts, and with an underlying neurobiological framework. And as we get closer and closer to that, we will also have a form of neurotherapeutics. Yep. which allows one to use the neuroscience and the technology to uh, improve one's awareness, improve one's regulation and transcendence as sort of a scaffolding. So I'm excited for that, and I think, uh, I think we're moving towards that. <laughs> Me too, and actually I am not opposed to neurotherapeutics as a clinician. I think Good. that it's another tool in our toolbox that can be extremely helpful. What I hope is that you know as we go forward that... Somehow, um, those of us who actually work with patients, you know, that we're included somehow in the research and the discussion about all this because we're the ones who get to see people's progress. We get to see what works and what doesn't work because we're delivering and seeing people 
uh, either in short-term therapy or, you know, for the people who have serious um, either psychotic maladies or they also have personality disorders, sometimes we see those people in therapy for a couple of years. So we really get to chart progress um, as well as regress <laughs> and yeah. progress again and regress in terms of what liberation looks like clinically um, in a psychotherapeutic context. Yeah. So. I, I think that's going to be really helpful. Let, just and, and similarly to the whole embodied cognitive perspective too. I don't really know whether or not neurobiology is capable of delineating the actual essence, substance, I don't know what to call it, of <laughs> pure awareness. Because if it is truly beyond, I'm not sure how any machine can detect beyond. On the other hand, it is an actual experience. It's a classic philosophical question of, you know, if, um, if I'm able to take the pattern of neuron, neuronal activity of my experience of a sunset and replicate it into silicon chips, one neuron at a time, and put that into, you know, some sort of AI um, computer, would it have the same experience of that sunset as me? Well, yeah. of course, you and I would both agree that it might not because it doesn't actually have a human body. Right. And even the Buddhist texts are very clear that a human body is the necessary condition for awakened embodied cognition. You know, and there's going to be perspectives on both sides. The hard neuroscientists would say, absolutely, of course. I know. That's but, what it is. It's right in the brain. But um, I I, it's certainly a debate that's um, going to continue until we actually can try it. <laughs> and, uh, this is the most amazing discussion, really. Yeah, it's been wonderful uh, and really rich. Um, no, I, I think I would just encourage people to, uh, to look at your book um, because I think it does a great job of articulating many of these concepts um, that are difficult. Um, and the literature, so, um, you know, the SART paper that I've written, um, as well as the Enlightenment paper with Jake Davis, and I also wrote a paper in, in your Academy of Sciences that also clarifies a little bit about what we meant by habits of mind, mm -hmm. and then the time scale, it talks about the, you know, the zero to 500 milliseconds sort of time scale and what's happening. So that, that could, those are good resources, at least. I'm so glad you're here on the planet doing this work, David. That's all I can say, really. Thank you so much. Copyright 2014, Lisa Dale Miller and David Vago. All rights reserved.